So we're starting uh, a new section this week, um, which is, as we have for the others, it's over two weeks. So we'll be, cover- we'll be beginning this week uh, and then looking at the conclusion uh, in two weeks' time, reminding ourselves when we're looking at the idea of worship, we're looking at it under the four headings that Jesus commands the idea of the way that we love our God. Uh, And I suppose in broad, general terms, we're looking at the idea that if we worship God, if God is the one who we love, uh, then worship is an expression of that love. It's not the totality. Worship isn't everything. Loving God is all of our lives. But when we gather together and we worship, then there are four aspects which we're looking at the idea of worship uh, and the loving the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your strength, and with all of your mind. That's what it says in Luke chapter 10 uh, and verse 20, 27. We're going slightly out of order because we, we tend to remember heart and soul and mind and strength. That's the way that we tend to remember. So we're looking at the idea of worship through the mind. Um, and I guess for some that's a great turn on. For others, that's a great turn off, um, but we ought not to uh, ignore it. It's that idea of the capacity that we have as human beings of being rational thinkers. We are that. We're, we do think. We, we rationalize. We can't help but rationalize, ponder, decide. The things that we do, the decisions that we make, Um, many of them are almost instinctive, and yet the vast majority come from the idea of of thinking and rationalizing. So, what what did you have for breakfast this morning? Um, You might think, some of you might think, that's almost an instinctive reaction. You know that, is it the cornflakes or is it bran flakes? I don't know, one of them kind of comes, comes down, it's like some sort of Neanderthal. A guy in his dressing gown and disheveled hair and he opens the cupboard, he pulls it out and it's kind of, it looks a kind of auto-reflex. And yet the reality is that we've rationalized that decision right the way back to the decisions that we make before we go into the supermarket to buy the stuff that we're going to have for breakfast. We rationalize so much from the relatively insignificant of what we have for breakfast to the idea of what is life all about? What is this meaning of our existence? From the tiny issues to the huge issues. The Bible makes it really clear that that's the uniqueness of us as human beings. And therefore, using that capacity to rationalize, to decide, to think, is one of the key aspects of our Christian life. And one of the key aspects of our worship. Paul says it like this, in terms of its significance, in Romans chapter 12 and verse 2, he says this, do not, he's saying to Christians, this is how to live, do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed, how? How be transformed? By the renewing of your mind. That's how he says, be transformed, by the renewing of your mind. Uh, There is that sense in which our rational worship is a new mind that is coming to the worship of God 
And it is a new mind which we bring as believers, regenerated, living in Christ believers, who live our lives as worship and engage in worship through the idea of thinking. We mentioned what a tragic week this has been. How often, how often over this past six months have we said that? It seems as though there is a repeated issue after issue after issue. This week was different, wasn't it? And yet we still sit here today and we say, what a week. Uh, Some of you will know Victoria Corrin Mitchell. She's a TV presenter and she's also um, a writer for The Guardian and The Observer. She writes an opinion uh, uh, article a number of weeks, most weeks for for The Guardian. And at the end of this tragic week, she was writing and she says, opinion seems so trite. It almost seems as though giving an opinion on anything less than the significance of this event, the Grenfell Tower event, is just so trite. In fact, she feels as though she almost can't cope with more bad news. There is this constant onslaught of bad news. And so, in one sense, she recommends to her friends that in the stress of news, that they actually step away from news. They cut themselves off for a while. And not in a kind of... She is not being trite, actually. She's suggesting a whole list of things to think about which take our mind to another place. Amongst them, she says, think about this. The fact that the Queen pretended to parachute into the Olympic Stadium in 2012. Well, how about this? This, for people of a certain age, will uh, ring memory bells. Brown paper packages tied up with string. That was a kind of a Victorian Corin Mitchell kind of comment, wasn't it, in that song? Remember nice things when we face adversity. She goes on to say, that's the real keeper from the famous song. Raindrops on roses are all very well, but nobody's life is ever better for schnitzel or scratchy gloves, which I think is quite poignant. And yet, right at the end, she says this. The final thought, God Then in brackets she says, I know that thought doesn't comfort everybody. I find it does me. I thought that is a massive comment for somebody to make this day and age. Not least, to be perfectly honest, in The Guardian. And yet she claims a Christian faith. And she's actually engaging in serious discussion on other articles that I've read where she is, she is sad about the idea, and she's an incredibly intelligent woman, that it seems as though we, are, we have created a, a kind of a, a separation. You are either a, radic, uh, sorry, a rational, logical thinker 
and therefore you're an atheist, or you are a non-rational, logical thinker. You don't really think, and you might be religious. And she says, hang on a sec, that, that, that's not right. We might not agree with each other, but deciding that having a faith in God is not the same as being irrational or illogical. I think that's massively important in our generation for us to get to grips with that issue because it has always been the case in Western thinking in the past two, three hundred years that the issue of rational thinking and faith, particularly Christian faith, cannot go hand in hand. We need to challenge that. We need to engage with that because The Bible makes it very clear that our rational thinking is not just what can make us believers in God, but it is essential to the act of worship. It's that big. I want to say just two things before we look at this idea of mind in worship. Firstly, I want to say, and to emphasize again, the interdependency of these ideas. We're going to see it in a few minutes in a deeper way. Heart, soul, and mind. Perhaps our mind moves first. Perhaps our heart moves first. Perhaps our emotion moves first. But they cannot be independent. We might be moved by a moment, But we have to come back and rationalize and say, well, that moment might have been something, but what does the message of the Bible actually say to me? So that's the first thing. They are interdependent. They rely on each other. Why? Because we are beings with heart and soul and mind and strength. That is us. And God is saying, love me, worship me with all that you are everything that you are. Don't leave bits out. (laughs) Put them to the side as though they're not important to worship. So the first is the interdependence. The second is this, a greater level of ability to rationalize does not equate to a greater level of worship. I'll say that in another way. If you're really bright and you can think a lot about worship, that does not mean that you worship more because you can think more than somebody else. Jesus makes that really clear in so many ways. He treasures those who are marginalized in society. Can you worship with giving? Of course you can. What we give, what we say, you have given all that I have. I don't consider it mine. And therefore, for me to give for the good of the kingdom of Jesus is not really giving at all. And some might be able to do that more than others. But Jesus looked at the rich putting their gifts into the temple treasury. And he also saw a poor widow put in two very small copper coins. Truly, I tell you, this poor widow has put in more than all the others. 
All these people gave their gifts out of their wealth, but she gave out of her poverty, but she out of her poverty, rather, put in all she had to live on. There's the point. Jesus is saying, it's not about how much you bring in quantity terms. It's about how much you bring of you. So I don't want any of us to leave here thinking, either on the one hand, I worship more because I can rationalize my faith more and my understanding of systematic theology and biblical issues and being able to read the original Hebrew and Greek means that I can worship so much more. We cannot think this. And nor can we think, I cannot worship God because I can't think through my faith. Because we all can to one level or another. And God delights in the level that we think according to the gift that He has given us. It's really important. And so we're going to see the process of becoming worshippers. Worship is an amazing thing, isn't it? This, this idea of the mind. And we, I think one of the best examples is our reading in, in Acts chapter 17, verse 16. We find Paul in uh, Athens. <coughs> Athens is an amazing place in the first century. An incredible place. Historically, it has been at the very heart, the Greek Empire previous to the Roman Empire, and all of the thinking that is emerging from Greek philosophy continues to impact us today. That's how significant Greek thinking was. It was an amazing place, and Paul finds himself in that place with this message of the Bible. <laughs> I think that's great, because if we think that the Christian message is only for non-thinkers, we need to be reminded that the Christian message went to the very heart of thinking in the first century. It went to the very center and it, it disrupted, it challenged, and it ever has continued to challenge. He takes this Christian thinking into that place. And the first thing that we see is that his heart is moved. Remember I said earlier they're interdependent, his heart is moved. While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. He was greatly distressed. His heart was moved when he looked around them, uh, and he sees this place, which is filled with religiosity, filled with worship, and yet the worship of Jesus Christ is absent. And so, as a result of his heart move, he becomes mind-engaging. You see that step? His heart is moved, and so he reasoned in the synagogues with both Jews and God-fearing Greeks as well as in the marketplace, day by day, with those who happen to be there. That little line there of, of uh, reasoning in the synagogues and in the marketplace is massively important. 
He's basically saying, I went to those who had the idea of the, uh, the God of the Old Testament, Jews and Greeks who believed in that God. I went to the synagogue and I reasoned with them about Jesus. But then I went out into the marketplace and I engaged in the marketplace with reasoning. <laughs> uh, I don't know the last time you went into Ponty Market and, and bumped into a few uh, Epicurean or Stoic philosophers discussing uh, at great length the issues of the existence of life uh, and the meaning of life and where we're headed. You don't, you don't, that is not what we think about, what we need to think about when we think marketplace. He's saying, I went to the place where Jews and Jews and those who adhered to Jewish thinking engaged in religious debate, and I went to the marketplace of thinking, which was outside of that. I went to the place where the non-thinking, non-Jewish thinking, thinking people went, because they debated in the marketplace. We get a little taste of it, I guess, the closest is Speaker's Corner where people will stand up and they'll bring a, a speech and there will be debate and discussion going on. That was going on all the time in Athens. And so Paul brings this. The outcome of that, the outcome of that discussion resulted in him ending up at the Areopagus, which was essentially a religious court. court. It was testing his ideas with the religious authority, and as a result of that, we find that there were some who believed. We didn't read verse 34, my fault, but the end of our reading, uh, when they had heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered, but others said, we want to hear you again on this subject. At that, Paul left the council. Some of the people became followers of Paul and believed. Among them was Dionysius, a member of the Areopagus, also a woman named Damaris and a number of others. So Paul ends up in this situation. He's discussing in the synagogue, he's reasoning, he's using his, this incredible intellect that Paul has. This actually is one of my favorite parts of the New Testament. I look at this in just awe and wonder at the way that he engages in this discussion. It's just astounding as we see him engage. But he speaks to those who are Jewish uh, thinkers, and he speaks to those who are Greek thinkers. The end result is that he is not kicked out as a crackpot. He's drawn in to the highest level of intellectual debate that you could imagine in the Western world at that time. That's incredible, isn't it? He is taken to the very center of thought at the highest level. And they say, tell us about this. So, let's really simply apply our minds to the argument that he makes. Because there are really simple steps in an astoundingly, breathtakingly, beautiful, complex and wide-ranging oratory statement. Let's make the simple steps. Apply your mind, step one. 
the idea of God depends on Him showing Himself. Point one. The idea of God depends on Him showing Himself. Verse 22. Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and said, People of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious, for I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship. I even found an altar with this inscription, To an unknown God. So you are ignorant of the very thing you worship. And this is what I am going to proclaim to you. I don't... I, Paul, Paul's intellect here, God-given speed of thought, is breathtaking. He, is, he actually, as an aside, he actually could have been thrown off the cliffs uh, for heresy in this court for speaking of a God that doesn't exist. That's how significant this conversation was. And he says, I've seen a God that you worship that you don't see, that you don't know. And I'm going to declare that very God to you. The God that you don't know is the God that you need to know, and the God that you need to know is the God that has shown himself. That's what Paul has at the very core of all of his thinking. The God who we need to know is not a philosophical unknown idea. It is Jesus who has revealed himself to us. That is the turning point for Paul's faith when he's on his way to Damascus and no less than Jesus reveals himself. It is the most staggering conversion in the New Testament. And that's what Paul says. The idea of God depends on him showing himself. In fact, towel at the ready, the idea of God and him showing himself makes this God who you worship that you don't know far superior to every other God who you worship. It's incredible. But it's also a genius statement in this way. And it's a genius statement because it doesn't rely, it doesn't depend simply on being there. It speaks out to you and me. It's as though Paul is saying to you and me today, the unknown God, perhaps for some of us here today, the unknown God is the God who you need to know and it is the God who I am going to declare to you. You need to know this God. And I'm not kind of hiding him away. I am making him really open, Paul says. So that's the first step. Step number two, apply your mind. The true God can't be contained by us. Now just think about that for a minute. Without even looking at what Paul says, 
There is a logical rightness to that, isn't there? If we could contain God, then God is no longer God in terms of His majestic greatness. A God has to be that. But if we can contain God, then He is no longer that and therefore can't be God. And so he says, the God, in verse 24, the God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by human hands. He's saying this, look around Athens, you've got all of these gods and all of these gods are gods of your creation. I walk into this temple and what? There is a great statue of a god. And you have formed that god and you have created that god. But the god who I am declaring to you is not the god who you have formed and created. It is the god who created everything that you have used to form the god that you've now created. It's the god that goes before. We come from that god. And and the idea that he he lives in temples made by us is just counterintuitive. You can't have a God that's contained by us. That doesn't make sense. God has to be bigger than that. He has to be greater than that. He's not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath, and everything else. They constructed temples and made God dependent on them. Oh, isn't that stupid, we might say. We don't create temples physically to contain God anymore. We create temples that constrain God by our own thinking and understanding. We say, God has to be like this, because that's what I think God should be like. No, we don't, we don't chisel out gods from marble or stone or or bash gold into shape anymore to form the God that we demand. The gods that we formed is through the chiseling of our thinking that says God must be like this. And we, we contain God in exactly the same way as the Athenians did. We say, I've decided that God should look like this, and that's the God that I'm going to worship because I'm comfortable with that God. I feel as though I've got that God under control. Can't do anything to me. All I, all I do is towards Him. And so we construct a God which is maybe bound by our concept of love. Our God is a loving God. But we create that, that kind of cameo, that kind of caricature of God, where love becomes such a feature that we strip God of any ability to be judge, 
of any ability to say you're wrong. <laughs> we say you can't do that because you're a loving God. What have we done? We've created a temple of thinking that contains God. We can never therefore have a God who punishes with justice because that doesn't fit our thinking. Or on the other extreme, we decide that God is is righteous and moral and good. And He is. And we say, therefore, everybody who follows Him must be righteous and moral and good. And if they don't meet the mark, then they can't truly believe in that God. And we've forgotten that there is another aspect to God, which is grace. And he says, come to me when you have failed. Come to me when you are a mess. Come to me when you know that you are rebelling. Because I love you. And Jesus is my statement of love. And so we create temples of thought which constrain God. And Paul says in this genius statement, a real God, a true God, cannot be contained by us. Point three, apply your mind. If God is the origin of us, then we bear His image. Do you remember previously He said, the God who made the whole world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven. That includes us. Now in verse 26 He says, from one man He made all the nations that they should inhabit the whole earth and He marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. God did this so they would seek Him and perhaps reach out for Him and find Him, though He is not very far from any of us, any one of us. And then He quotes the poet, one of their poets. For in Him we live and move and have our being. As some of your poets have said, we are His Offspring. That's one of their poets saying, we are his offspring. And Paul is saying here, the fact that we are created by God means that it is absolutely inevitable. And it is just absolutely clear, therefore, that we bear the image of God in our thinking, in the way that we respond. And there is a mark of God, not just on an individual basis, but on all the events in history. Everything that has happened. All of the ways, this is the confused, this is the, not, it's not even confusing is the wrong word to use. This is the seemingly paradoxical mystery, which I cannot get my head around but which the Bible declares that even when humanity rebels against God, there is a general journey which God is taking the whole of the world on, which always fulfills His purpose. Let's make it really simple in a kind of very personal way. God, in the Old Testament reveals to us the story of Jonah. We know about Jonah. He's to go to Nineveh. He's to speak about the God of the Hebrews. (laughs) 
can't go, can't go there. They're, then they're pagan people. They don't deserve this God. He goes the other way. He rebels. Centuries later, Jesus uses the very rebellion of Jonah to describe his ministry. Because the very rebellion of Jonah, although Jonah was accountable for that rebellion, was serving the greater purpose of God. I, 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 can't, I, can't, I don't want to even try to work out in the mystery of God how that works out over history. But that's what Paul is saying. The times of nations, the times of powers are there They are there for us to look, maybe at horror. Maybe nations that rise up that are horrific are there for us to look and say, this is not how it should be. This is not right. And they are there within history for a time for us to reflect and say, this isn't the kind of kingdom that we should be living in. Isn't there another kingdom? Well, yes, the kingdom of Jesus. There is a purpose to all of this. But look at the other way that Paul is using the mind. And this, this just this gives you know, spine-tingling, goosebumps kind of moment. Paul knows about their poets. He knows the kind of language that the poets are using. As some of your poets declare, we are his offspring. He's looking at the way that we are thinking. And he's creating connections and he's seeing. Don't you see that we all instinctively have this within us? We can see, even if we're we're not conscious of this God, there are aspects of our lives which are pointing to this. And Paul has this sheer genius of being able to make those connections and say, do you see? Do you see that even the things that we have around us that seemingly don't speak about God have kind of pictures and pushes and nudges, directions, signposts all over the place that are saying, God of the Bible, think about this see that so much of what we're saying fits into this. Apply our minds. We are His offspring. So critical to Paul's argument here is this. There is a God sense within us. There is a God sense. There is that that inner indefinable and yet absolutely clear sense of God in humanity, which is pointing us and, and, and grabbing hold of our thinking and saying, I will not let you go. You cannot easily shed yourself from this demand that I am making, which is the God of the Bible is speaking to us in the way that we are. Point number four, apply your mind. God has revealed Himself with a purpose. 
Earlier, we said God, Paul said that God has created this boundaries of time and history. There are things that are happening, there are directions that we're going on, and it's for a reason. And the ultimate culmination of all of that past history, in Paul's perspective of the human race, is Jesus. Verse 29. Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by human design and skill. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now He commands all people everywhere to repent. He's saying, in the past, I have understood that in your clamoring for this sense of God, you have constructed these images of God. I understand that, but now I demand you repent. How has God demanded that we repent? That's the key question, isn't it? How has God demanded that we repent? For He has set a day when He will judge the world with justice by the man He has appointed. Whoa, hang on a sec. So, so, so this isn't a philosophy, it's about a person. So all of the world's history and all of the kind of twists and turns that you've been shaping have brought the whole of the world to a point for a person to come and to exist in this world. Uh, and that this one has been appointed to judge us. How do we know that he has the authority to judge us. He's given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. In one of the most powerful sermons, oratory declarations made in the New Testament, the name Jesus is not mentioned. And yet the notion of Jesus is at the very center of the whole of the argument. In fact, he says it in such a way so that the non-saying of the name Jesus is the, the most obvious question. Who is this man who's raised from the dead? Who is it? He says it in such a way that we want to say, well, who is it? But we know, don't we? It's Jesus. So Jesus, he's saying, has come and has declared that we repent. So the revealing of God, which was right at the very beginning of this, we said it was all about God revealing Himself, the revealing of God has happened through Jesus coming. But that is only half the story. Jesus has come first, but Jesus is coming second. So Paul is saying there are three dramatic events in human history. There is the forming of human history, there is the coming of human history, uh, sorry, there is the coming of Jesus in Revelation where all of the past God acknowledges and now demands that we repent, and there is the second coming of Jesus when He will judge the world. Where do we sit 
We sit in that space in between, don't we? Between the first and second coming of Jesus. And the amazing thing about this is that Paul says this. He uses this rational thinking, this step-by-step argument. Why? Because he desperately wants people to become worshippers. That's what he wants. He wants us to sit here and say, I can, I can see with my rational thinking now how God has shaped all of this world's patterns. I can see the significance of Jesus. I can see that it means something to me. And I know now that I need to become a worshipper of God. In fact, it means that now every time I worship God, in all of the events in life, I apply my way of thinking to everything. This new lens that I see the world through, this new rationale. But when I gather together in this way, in the way that we are this afternoon, the, the, the genius of Paul shouts out and he says, I want you to engage your heart. I want you to, to decide to be different. I want your soul to be moved. I want you to be emotionally engaged in worship. And I want you to think. I want you to think, not because it's this test, but because it is breathtakingly beautiful. It is amazing what God has done. And so, there is a sense in which, in one line, in Victoria Corrin Mitchell's article of today, in the light of the horrors of this past week, there is solace in the thinking of God. There is a sense in which we can engage in a way which doesn't dismiss this terrible event, but allows us to, to immerse ourselves in it and yet not sink. Because there is God. For some, that is irrational. But what Paul is saying is it is far from that. It is rational. The Christian faith is rational. The Bible does not demand that the world sits on the back of an elephant. It is a rational faith. I'm not saying that everybody will agree with it. Because it is just that. It is a faith. It is believing in what we cannot see. I cannot rationalize and prove without a shadow of a doubt the existence of God. But nor can anybody disprove without a shadow of a doubt the existence of God. It is rational. Let's worship God with our rational capabilities.